Marginal gains has become a really popular phrase in the world of cycling for the last 10 years or so. And one man who lives and breathes by a mantra is none other than Josh Portner. Now the owner of Silka, with a fast growing range of accessories and products guided by the principle of marginal gains and backed up by 15 years of experience working for Zip and a regular go-to consultant for many World Tour professional cycling teams, he knows a thing or two about extracting more performance out of the humble bicycle. So in this podcast, we discuss many aspects of marginal gains. Some of the cutting edge World Tour professional cycling developments from disc brakes to tubeless tyre inserts, how marginal gains impacts you and I regular non-racing cyclists. He shares some tips on marginal gains that don't cost a fortune and some that are actually free. Go faster for free, yes please, I'm all over that. And I picked his brains on future tech developments as well. But I started off by asking him what marginal gains actually means. Yeah, so marginal gains is the the theory of, um, you know, what if you could take, say, 1% or, or make something 1% better in every aspect, right? So you're you're tweaking at the margins um, in, in the direction of improvement. And so it's, a, it's an economic theory. It's been used, you know, most famously Dave Brailsford at uh, British Cycling and, and Team Sky, now Ineos. Um, but it's... It, it's taught in business classes and business schools, but the idea is, you know, if you've got, you know, a hundred components on a bicycle and you make each of them 1% better, um, that you can find some real improvement. And if you could make, uh, certain systems, you could maybe make 1% better, um, you know, every month or every quarter or every year, like how would that improvement stack up, um, and so, and then in some systems, you know, I think of like uh, aviation and commercial aircraft where the the marginal gains methodology has been taken so far that, you know, something like the Boeing 787 Dreamliner, you know, was I think 10,000 hours of wind tunnel and they found just under 1% drag reduction. So wow. it's a pretty, you know, that's a system that's already been heavily marginal gains, but there's still some defined. And of course, in that world, you know, that 0.9% drag reduction is something like a couple hundred thousand dollars of fuel saved per plane per year. So, you know, it, it adds up in that sense, um, even though it sounds like a, a tiny number. So in my world, you know, we, we have Silka, uh, which is sort of the product side of our company. Um, but the, the core company is called Aeromind and we do uh, consulting for, you know, bike brands, pro teams, pro athletes, triathletes. And, and so this marginal gains methodology is sort of my, um, my school of thought for running that, uh, consulting business that we, that we do. Okay. So when it comes to developing products or working with pro teams, how easy are these marginal gains? Are they low hanging fruit or are they kind of difficult to obtain these days? <laughs> oh, it, it's getting harder. That's for sure. Okay. And, it, and it depends really depends where we're looking. And, and I would say um, the the players involved, you know, something like um, aerodynamics, there's really always more marginal gains to be found aerodynamically. And some of that's coming from rule changes, um, which are going to allow us to maybe move into some more uh, efficient aerodynamic shapes. Some of that comes from just creativity and maybe kind of pushing the rules at the edges, you know, like 
<laughs> bending the rules a little bit on like how you interpret something about clothing, say, or okay. um, certain parts of the the position of the rider. You know, some of it comes from just sheer brute force. You know, the uh, some of the wind tunnel stuff we do is just you know, 40, 50 hours of wind tunnel tweaking and refining rider position to find that last little bit. Um, yeah, it, it, but it also depends on, you know, there, there's some teams that we might go into and say, oh, wow, you you could save five watts per wheel with a different tire sponsor. Um, and in that case, there's oftentimes not a lot we can do other than maybe um, takes from our data and say, well, you know, this is the tire that you should be on for your key events. And so make sure you're your top riders are on this, you know, on this tire at this time trial at the tour or, or whatever that is. Um, so it, it really depends on the constraints of the system, but. It's a limit to how many marginal gains you can find without a sort of rule change or some new technology breakthrough. I mean, what's a limitation to how many marginal gains you can find, I guess. Well, it, it depends, I guess, how interested or willing you are to split those hairs, you know, like formula one's a great example of, you know, they bring the new rule book and it's chaos for a year. And then over a couple seasons, like all the cars really become the same. And that's because everybody's looking at everyone else's marginal gains and copying what appears to be working. And so, you know, there's always, you know, like the 787, there's always that next 10,000 hours of wind tunnel time you can put into something. But, you know, in our world, is it, is it, if I said 10,000 hours of wind tunnel at a thousand dollars an hour to find less than 1% of improvement, I, you know, nobody's going to, nobody's going to agree to that. That's crazy. Um, so, you know, we definitely benefit from things like rule changes, uh, new technologies coming about. Um, you know, some of it honestly is the open-mindedness of the rider, the athlete, you know, it was all the way back in 2008, 2009 that we realized that we needed, much wider tires to go a lot faster at Paris-Roubaix. And it, it, we had to develop the wheel to work with those tires. But I mean, I spent two years just convincing the riders to ride it. <laughs> and, and so, you know, even when you have something that you, you know is better, it, it sometimes there's other pieces of the, you know, the equation, right? Like, <laughs> like you know, con- convincing the rider to break from what all the other riders are doing. Because I think it, it psychologically... Uh, it, it feels quite risky for them. You know, I, if I lose this race on equipment, the same equipment as my peers, then I've lost this race. But if I try something new and revolutionary and lose this race, then what if it's that? Um, and, and so that's, you know, I would, there's definitely a mental, uh, psychological marginal gains component as well. You must find that frustrating when you are developing and testing these new products and the science is clear, the data shows it's faster, but you come and get up against the sort of try and test it a mantra of, of pro road cycling, which definitely held them back from innovations that we've seen embraced by mountain bikers in particular, where they, there's no limit to technology there. So there must be a frustration for you trying to convince a team or rider to this faster, but you have to find another way to get them to embrace the benefits where data and science oh, and always. Yeah, yeah. the the young The young me was very frustrated by it. The older me, <laughs> the older me is, is looks at it more as part as part of the game. But yeah, okay. I mean, the, the young engineering minded me was a lot of like, you know, look at the the data. <laughs> Can you not see this? Um, yeah, I, I've my mindset's changed on that in in time, and and a lot of it I think does come back to, you know, some of these gains are small enough that. You know, if we're 
cracking into the writer's psychology or, or causing them mental stress, then they're really not going to go faster. You know, I mean, yeah, there's yeah. certain things that are, you know, disc wheels and arrow bars and arrow helmets, like y- you have to have those. That's a bare minimum. Um, but, you know, if I'm trying to, if I'm finding you a quarter of a percent through some change that makes you uncomfortable, you'll easily lose that quarter percent because you're thinking about it for your event or, or whatever. So, you know, it's it's definitely gone both ways on my podcast. I think I've told a lot of great uh, Alberto Contador stories. He's probably my nemesis yep. as an athlete because he just refused <laughs> to believe anything ever. Um, and as a result was often making just bad decisions. Um, but he also was a, a rider that needed a lot of those, dis- those things to happen uh, psychologically to be comfortable. Um, and it, it took me a long time to kind of come to terms with that. When you're working with, um, with the pros, I mean, back in 2008, you were working with Fabian Cancellara trying to get them to use uh, deep session wheels for Paris-Roubaix. Now, I remember that being a big breakthrough, the carbon rim can. That's like the last kind of a holdout for old tech. I remember seeing cross bikes being used at a race you know, 10 years ago, but now they're all on deep session wheels. So we've seen some quite big breakthroughs. And do you now see riders, younger riders, especially more willing to embrace the latest technology, whereas 10 years ago, they're more resistant to embrace? I would say it still depends on the the rider. I mean, I think the the younger generation definitely is coming up in a different a different world. You know, I, I think I certainly grew up in a in a world based much more on sort of a mentorship model. You know, you okay. you join the club and you were kind of brought under the wing of other riders and taught how things were. You know, and okay. and I think as a result, a lot of the riders for generations had these very strong kind of belief systems or conventional wisdom systems based on that mentorship model. I, I think the younger generation tends to be, um, you know, they're the internet generation, right? They grew up with this world of, of uh, access and information in front of them. Uh, and at the same time, the industry is really invested heavily in, in actual science and, and data. Yeah. You know, I, I spent I spent two years racing in France and it was very much the like, you know, you can't have a house plant because it makes the oxygen too high and it, it <laughs> in the room and, <laughs> you know, you can't sleep with the window open because you'll get sick and, and, you know, and, and the bikes were the, you know, very much kind of the, the same way, you know, every, everybody was on the 21 millimeter tire all the time because it was the fastest. And, um, you know, and we, we just now know better and we've got so much easier information sharing. Um, you know, you don't have to rely on the, the 12 issues of a cycling magazine that come, you know, come to your house once <laughs> a month. Like that was like the, that was the sum total of all the knowledge that you had access to in, in some ways. Um, yeah. So I, I would say it's, it, it's easier for this younger generation uh, to be a little bit more open-minded. And, and I think there's just a lot more evidence-based and science-based information out there for them to absorb if they're open-minded to it. Now, marginal gains is largely, well, for the pros anyway, about going faster and you know, winning races. But how can your work with Silke and how can it benefit everyday cyclists who don't pin a number on every weekend? Can marginal gains benefit normal recreational cyclists as well? Is it all about winning races and for the pros? Oh, gosh. No, you know, at, at the... At the pro level, I like to talk about what we do with a lot of these marginal gains is, is really, you know, we're, we're improving the odds. 
Um, You know, it's a little bit marginal gains in professional cycling is a little bit like card counting in blackjack, right? You, you can count the cards and really know that you're working situations when the odds, you know, are more in your favor or less. Um, and that can help tremendously with decision making, but it, it still doesn't mean you, you know, you don't win every time, right? You still get burned. <laughs> you still crack the odds. Um, and, and that's really what, what we're doing. You know, I, you know, we're not directly doing things that are, you know, quote unquote, winning the race. Um, but we are doing things that are, you know, reducing the calories burned up until, you know, the riders launching the sprint on, on four or 500 fewer calories burned in that race because of tweaks that we've made, right? The, the, you know, riders able to, uh, you know, go at that 10th of a kilometer, uh, per hour faster in their sprint because of this arrow tweak that we've made or, you know, things like that. Um, a lot of the marginal gains I think we do too, are also, um, focused on, you know, kind of reducing, uh, potential, uh, failures, right. Reducing okay. punctures. Um, you know, one of the, the awesome kind of secrets of tire pressure optimization is, you know, when I grew up, tire pressure was a, was a maximize situation, right? It was, I would say, you know, there's three types of problems to solve. There's maximize, minimize, and optimize. And, you know, you wanted to maximize tire pressure and minimize weight. And now we realize that tire pressure isn't that type of problem at all. It's an optimization problem. Um, but we also know that when the tire pressure is optimal, you're getting better load distribution uh, in the tire and you have better force distribution through the casing. So you're actually a little bit less likely to puncture for a given situation. Um, you know, but we also know that on these lower, faster pressures, you can pinch flat, right? And so we now have to make sure that we're uh, optimizing the tire volume or the size to the rider weight and to the course roughness that we're both minimizing the puncture likelihood uh, while maximizing comfort uh, and grip, uh, and typically, you know, if you if you hit it all just right, you can put together this the, a package that will be the fastest package that's also very comfortable and less likely to puncture. Um, and again, it's those are all at the edges. You know, or we're not going to eliminate punctures, um, but if we can tweak, you know, make it two, three, four percent less likely, that in time will will help. Right. And I, I think that's where, you know, looking at kind of my career history, you know, a lot of this came from the, all the work that we did at CSC way back in the day with, with the team from Cervelo and, you know, when I was at Zip. And, and we really looked at CSC as very much like a Moneyball situation, if you're familiar with that book or the movie. Um, it's about American baseball. So it's, yeah, I've seen the movie. Yeah. I think it's most, <laughs> but, um, you know, we were with CSC, we had one of the lowest budget teams in the world tour. Um, but statistically, you know, I mean, we won a team champion, a UCI team championship one year. And, you know, one of the the things that we were doing were very Moneyball uh, related. You know, we're going to put everybody on the most aero bike every day. We're going to do these, these really intricate um, rider position optimizations. You know, we're going to look at things like, um, you know, one of the the big things I, I think of was uh, like some of the flat tour stages, you know, we would put the, the guys who were dropping back to the cars to fetch bottles. I mean, we were basically putting them on like time trial bikes without aero bars. Um, Cause when you look at it, like, Oh, if you, 
it, you know, you're going to drop back six times today for bottles, and then it's going to take you one and a half kilometers to chase back on. Okay. You know, that's like six small time trials in the course of a day. Like, I, I need you to get back on faster, and I need you to do it at a lower energy uh, expenditure. You know, I mean, we were really looking at details of caloric burn and things like that. And and again, it it didn't like take that team and make them win all the races all of a sudden, but on the aggregate, you know, the lower placed riders were placing higher and the moderately placed riders were placed, you know, if every, if every rider on the team can place two or three positions higher in every race, time, you know, multiplied out over a season, that's a big deal. Um, back to your question. As you can see, I always like to talk a lot and go off on tangents, <laughs> but, um, but for your for your average rider, you know, and myself included in that, it's you know, uh, optimizing your your tire pressure is going to improve handling. Uh, it's going to be more comfortable, and it's going to reduce the likelihood of flats. It's also going to extend your tire life because tires running in their optimal uh, load uh, zone um, have less uh, breakdown of the the rubber polymer in the tread, uh, and so you get more life out of your tires and you know, that's, they're not cheap, no, <laughs> right? <true>. There's benefit <laughs> there. Um, or, or like drivetrain optimization, you know, the jillion dollars we've spent tweaking and tuning and learning drivetrain optimization for the world tour. Well, you know, you can buy a lot of these products now. They're not that expensive. And, you know, if you see the zero friction cycling out of Australia, the test data, I mean, you know, our, our uh, hot melt chain wax is four times wear reduction over the second best uh, chain lubricant ever tested. So, you know, that's, it's a watt faster and that's cool if you're racing, but, you know, especially right now when, you know, a, a chain is really hard to find, yeah. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> and the prices are going up, you know, making your chain last four times longer, um, means that your cassettes and chain rings last four times long, right. It, that's a, that's a pretty healthy benefit. Um, so, you know, I, I like to think of coming at it from really all of those directions. And, and, you know, and then some of the stuff that we do for pro racing is just ridiculous. And, you know, we would never recommend that or like make a, a Silka product um, out of that. But I would say like, if you look at our product line as the Silka brand, I mean, a lot of those things have kind of come out of things that we did in the world tour that myself or the employees here were like, oh yeah, I'd buy that. Right. Or, or <laughs> you know, I'd recommend that to somebody. Uh, and then we go ahead and kind of you know, t typically once it's, we typically do like a two year, um, a two year sort of secrecy around a project. And then after that, we'll publicly release, uh, you know, whatever comes from that. So like this, the sealant that we just released, um, that, that was actually started as a, as a project for a world tour team. And, and okay. here we are now selling it to everybody. Yeah. That's a good point to, um, get into because like for many years, normal riders have tried to emulate pros and we've always looked at pros to kind of what they're riding, how they set the bikes up. But it's definitely been a, a flip in the last 10 years with disc brakes. And I think particularly wide tyres and low pressures is one area where amateurs have really embraced largely the benefits. But there are still some who don't believe wide tyres and low pressures are faster, but we know they are. I've done my testing. But pros seem to be still quite old school when it comes to tyre pressure and wide tyres. So that's an interesting sort of kind of role reversal there. I think have you seen that as well? Would you say it's definitely at the team level uh, for sure? And you know, I'll say some of that really comes back to you know one one of the 
things that we probably do the most of uh, in our business is is computer modeling. And you know the the thing that really at the end of the day makes the pros different from the rest of us is that they're just faster, right? And and that sounds like such a simple like yeah. such a simple thing, but you know you've got uh, the aerodynamic aerodynamics and cycling uh, are highly nonlinear, where most of the other things we're dealing with are are relatively linear. Um, and so, you know, something like rolling resistance, uh, it, it increases at a linear rate relative to your, your velocity. So, um, that's all, you know, our brains work linearly. It's easy for us to think about, well, you know, drag increases at the cube of velocity, uh, or so say drag increases at the square of velocity power to overcome the drag increases at the cube. Um, so, you know, if we graph those curves, you've got a straight line and you've got this very steep uh, curved line. And th- the reality is that the pros are just spending much, much more time in that really steep kind of okay. ugly part of that uh, drag to power curve. And so, you know, they – I've been saying, and I still think this is probably true, I think pro wheel tire selection probably tops out around 30 millimeters, maybe we 32. Yeah. Um, and that's really begin- being allowed by disc brakes. And it's going to take the rim manufacturers making sufficiently wide enough rims to control the airflow on those wider tires. Um, you know, you look at a product like the 3T has this discus 4540 or 4045. I can't remember exactly what it's called. But it's a 40 millimeter wide rim. And you can put a 32 millimeter tire on it and still have that beautiful toroidal wing shape. Um but it's a pretty extreme rim. I mean, there's there's not a wheel in the Pro Tour that's anything like it because it's just way, way out there. Uh, but that to me, that looks like the future. And I, when I try to start to draw the lines, it's like, ooh, by the time the tires go to 35, that wheel needs to be even wider. And now the forks and the frames are it, – it, it, I, I think that's probably um, our ceiling aerodynamically, right? For the rest of us, the aerodynamics are important, but – not in the same way they are for the the pro riders. And so, you know, for you or me, go into that extra two millimeters wider on the tire to get that improved comfort or, um, uh, you know, maybe that reduced rolling resistance if we're following our rolling res- tire rolling resistance chart. It, it's probably worth more in savings than we're paying in arrow penalties. Um, but if you or I were going 27, 28 miles an hour all the time, it would be a different story. Okay, I, I think I actually used those three T wheels on a Explorer Race Max gravel bike last year. Yeah. And they are, I think they're, I mean, they're wider as wide as a mountain bike rim internally, aren't they? It's whopping width. So that example is quite a good one. Like you've got the tire width and the rim width, but then the frame design. You almost need each item design you know, in unison rather than a tire design separately. At the moment, it seems disjointed. Someone's making a tire, someone's making a rim, someone's making the frames, and they don't often meet in them in the middle and perfect harmony do they so it's sort of a disjointed way of developing if you had a grand if you had like the f1 style rules every year here's the the brief of the bikes you might have that opportunity to go down that route but at the moment it's a kind of a few steps forward and a few back and it's very slowly inching towards what a, a road bike it's hard to imagine what a road bike might look like in 20 years 30 years at this current pace of development we've seen in the last 10 years compared to the previous 100 years yeah no, that's a great point. And I think, you know, we're definitely moving in the direction of system development over okay. component development. Um, but 
we are also at a place where the back end of the business um, is really moving ever closer towards more specialization. You know, so I think you're always going to have this push and pull. Um, you know, the the specialized and the Cannondales and the Treks of the world are moving ever more towards integrated system development. And yet at the same time, they're having to try to get those things made by ever more highly specialized uh, factories, right? That, mm-hmm. and, and so I think that's the, the natural, uh, I guess, the, the natural state of things as it's settled out over the last, you know, really not quite 20 years. Like that, that's relatively new. Uh, you know, we certainly didn't have it before the mid 2000s, say. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing that, that that then does open up, I think once you're a little bit like we see with the F1 rule changes, once you have people marching down their, their rigid system development roads, that's in some ways exciting new opportunity for, you know, some random dude <laughs> in a garage somewhere to, to just blow it all out of the water with something that's really wild and innovative. Um, and different because, you know, he's, you hate to say like thinking outside the box, but you know, there's, there's no box to be in. Um, yeah. So things that gets exciting for me. And I, I just hope that the UCI stays kind of open enough and loose enough with the rules that the equipment can keep up in the way that we, that we all want it to. I guess that's the ultimate barrier, isn't it? The UCI and their rule book and which way they decide bikes can develop in and we're just waiting to see what they decide to do, really, aren't we? So it's it's a shame, really, because I you know, the the reality is companies are spending huge portions of their development dollars building these race bikes, right? Because that's such a, pri- a primary uh yeah. marketing mode. And you know, <laughs> There, we definitely go through periods of time where, um, you know, there's some, I don't know, touring bike or, or, you know, I was doing what I do. I I don't actually get to ride my bike all that often. And, you know, it was a couple of years ago, went to get ice cream with my kids and we went riding on a, one of these local trails here in Indy. And I was shocked at all the like disc brakes. I just couldn't believe like everybody, (laughs) every single person had disc brakes. And, you know, I live in a world every day working with pro athletes where like nobody had disc brakes at the time. And you just think, oh, that's, that's crazy. Um, We just, yeah, we just need to be, I I think we need them a little bit more open-minded there and a little bit more uh, ideally kind of uh, working with the industry rather rather than against it. Cause there, there are a lot of good ideas and a lot of good products out there. Um, and it's hard for those companies to know where to spend those development dollars and how, and in a lot of cases it, it sticks them spending develop uh, very big development dollars in areas that, you know, maybe only have a year or two left before they're, wow. b- before they're just not relevant anymore to the consumer and, and might not have been relevant to most consumers for multiple years. Back to your, uh, your Moneyball reference earlier about um, you know, spending money on marginal gains. Lots of marginal gains out there, sort of products under sort of marginal gains umbrella can seem pretty expensive for the normal consumer if you don't have a protein to bankroll you. So um, do you need to spend a lot of money to get marginal gains or can you get marginal gains on a, on a budget without spending or spending any money at all? Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, so you know, there's a whole host of free marginal gains. Um, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> to, I mean, I mean, t- tire pressure is probably your oh, okay. your first easiest one. Um, yeah. 
you know, and we can talk about the the sort of like V shape of the the curve of rolling resistance, but you know, forever the the mental model right was the pressure goes up, rolling resistance comes down, and of course now we know that there's what we call the breakpoint, where it actually starts going up again, um, and so being able to put yourself kind of in the bottom of that V at the that peak minimum rolling resistance. Uh, you know, we we have a calculator uh, on our website that you can use to get pretty close to that. Uh, that's based on actual pro racing data. But you know, that's one where if you're just willing to spend a few minutes on your phone looking it up, plugging the numbers in, uh, you can probably find you know multiple watts uh, of efficiency gain at no cost. Right? It's just okay. a little bit of effort. Um, you know, and then you you get into uh, I would say marginal gains that are spending money in areas you're already spending it, just spending it more wisely. Um, and probably one of the biggest, lowest hanging fruit items here is clothing fit. You know, wrinkles are bad. Uh, and so finding, you know, it, but you've all, we've, you know, none of us are riding naked. So we, we're buying clothing from somebody somewhere. Um, so buying clothing that fits as tightly as possible with as much compression as possible um, can make a huge difference aerodynamically, especially at, at higher speeds. Um, you know, kind of a similar thing with, uh, you know, helmets there's, and oftentimes with helmets, the, the, it's kind of a dirty industry secret, but oftentimes the cheaper helmets are more aero because they just have fewer vents. Um, and so a lot of cases, you know, uh, uh, Giro is a good example. You know, they've always got like a $300 super aero helmet. That's like really amazing and aero. And, um, they brought back the, uh, what is it called? The air attack is the, the helmet that Le Monde rode in 1990, um, is still in their line. It's like $69 and it's like the second or third most aero helmet in their line. I mean, it, no it's way. like dramatically faster than most of the others. So, you know, some of that is just kind of knowing where to spend your money. Um, you know, uh, aero socks are a ridiculous one, but they're a relatively low cost, high savings, um, item. You know, I, I, I joke on my podcast, uh, we tend to talk about savings in terms of oversized pulley systems, right? So an oversized pulley system is going to save you a little under two Watts, like 1.6 to 1.8, depending on which one. Uh, and it's going to cost you probably 500 to a thousand dollars. Um, and so, you know, something like aero socks could save you somewhere on the order of three to four oversized pulley systems. And it's probably going to do it for about $30. So that's a, that's a pretty solid <laughs> way to spend money in my book. Um, you know, we get into lubricants and, you know, obviously uh, plugging my own stuff as well, but you know, uh, the best lubricants can get your chain, your drivetrain running in the four watt of loss range on a 250 watt input. Uh, whereas some of the worst lubes on the market that, that are actually quite popular lubes are more in the like nine to 12 Watts of loss. Um, wow. so, you know, we can look at that and go, oh, well, you know, we can probably find you three to four oversized pulley systems for a $25 bottle of lube. Um, if you, if you're looking at the right one, yeah. um, you know, uh, not exactly free, but, but cleaning your bike, <laughs> <laughs> right. Your, your drivetrain gets slower with dirt, uh, and it also wears faster with dirt. And so just, just cleaning your bike, yep. um, even if you're using bad lube, cleaning it and putting fresh bad lube on is going to save you one or two oversized pulley systems worth of Watts. Um, you know, for 
20 to 30 minutes of your time. So, you know, those are, I would say, the, the free to, to very cheap things. And then, of course, if you want to spend money, I mean, this is the cycling industry. We can, <laughs> we, we can find a million ways to spend your money for you. Um, but, you know, it, it's all of those same, uh, you know, kind of ideas, you know, aero frame, aero wheels, yeah. um, you know, tires are, are really one of the biggest you know, the, the rolling resistance differences between the best tires and even the middle of the road tires are, are dramatic. Um, and, and sometimes they're pretty dramatic for not huge differences in pricing. So, you know, we get you on a a GP 5,000, you know, TR tire, uh, can probably save you six to 10 Watts over, uh, you know, a relatively high end or, or, or middle of the road tire for maybe another manufacturer. Or, you know, if you're on a, a butyl inner tubes, you can go to latex inner tubes and save one to two pulley systems per tire of Watts um, by going from a, you know, a $5 inner tube to a $15 inner tube. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- those are, those are significant. Uh, and, and in a lot of cases, you know, more than the savings that you might be getting from, um, you know, this frame versus that frame, right? I mean, where frames have gotten to a point where they're they're all pretty darn good, and you know the the new Cervelo compared to the three year old Cervelo, I, I mean, it, it's probably not as big a difference as you're going to find between a new set of tires and a three year old set of tires, um, if you're buying the right tires. So, okay, I love how we're using the oversized pulley wheel as a sort of comparison for actual savings you can make compared to the because they have become a bit of a sort of target for hate on forums and the internet, you know, lots of a derision about how much they cost you and how little they save you. So um, you mentioned chain lubes just now, and I want to ask you what the difference is between a cheap lube and expensive lube, which you sort of answered already, but if you could elaborate on, there are, there's been an explosion of chain lubes in the last few years. I know you have quite a few chain lubes. So is that an area where you can really, you know, spend a, a reasonable amount of money, but get, decent savings that you actually notice out on the road and prolong the life of your drivetrain? Yeah, pretty. I mean, the, the technology there is really changing quickly. And, you know, a lot of this has just been allowed by other industries and chemistry. And, you know, our, mm-hmm. our technology actually came to me from a, a friend of mine uh, was working at uh, Renault Formula One. Okay. And he sent me a French research paper and just said, like, y- your industry should read this. And we read the paper and we're like, wow, that's pretty fascinating stuff. And so, you know, kind of like my little studio here is also my, my little like homebrew R and D lab. And so there's like, like over here, there's just like piles of like equipment and lube, um, testing and and stuff. But, you know, we start testing around on it and, and we're really impressed with both the efficiency savings, but also the wear improvements. And it happened to time up nicely with the zero friction cycling we mentioned earlier in Australia is an independent test lab that, um, looks at chain wear over time. And, you know, the, the difference uh, between some of these lubes is like, you know, a factor of eight, factor of 10 um, in terms of chain wear. And, and you think of the mechanism of chain wear, it's, it's uh, internal rubbing, metal on metal rubbing. And so you can't, you can't be fast and have high wear, right? (laughs) Right. There's no such thing. And so it, while at the same time, we've got friction facts and uh, a, a number of other laboratories doing independent, friction testing. And so, yeah, just looking at the, you know, 
a product, I'm looking at my desk here because I've got piles of it, but, you know, a product like White Lightning or, or some of the stuff from Finish Line, you know, 20 years ago, that was state of the art. It was a, a PTFE or, or some PFAS fluorinated chemical, which we now know are, are really toxic and, and should be avoided, but it was state of the art at the time um, in some sort of fast evaporating carrier, like a pentane or a heptane. And, and so, you know, you've got a bottle here, you can look at, you know, there's, this is a chain lube okay. that's probably 10% lube and 90% carrier. And you're shaking it up, dripping it in the chain and you're leaving when the, the 90% evaporates, you now have a chain that's 10% full of a, an average lubricant. Well, you know, this stuff rolls at like 11 Watts of drag and it, comes off in about 200 K and it's toxic. Um, the technology now, I mean, you look at the, the lube we developed and, you know, if you don't want to take my word for it, the ceramic speed stuff, they reformulated to be really similar to what we're doing. Um, you know, a, a product like this, you know, this is like 85% wax lube with tungsten disulfide nanoparticles. I mean, tech that didn't exist when the other stuff was invented. And, you know, you look at the zero friction uh, study, you know, a thousand kilometers of clean riding on a trainer, um, you know, this old school lube is going to cost you about 30% chain wear. And this new school stuff is going to cost you 0% chain wear. Wow. Well, that's a huge difference, right? And it's also going to do it while saving you a couple of watts. Um, and, and really more than a couple. I think in this case, it's like a seven watt savings between the two products. Um, and that's just the march of technology, right? And the march of time. And, and, um, you know, I think part of what I love about what I get to do is, you know, we, we get to make products out of the learning that has come through helping these teams or these companies, you know, solve their problems. Um, and so it's, you know, in the one hand, I, I get to experiment with and, and talk to these amazing scientists and people about the state of the art in these other industries, uh, and then it kind of comes back to, you know, how, what can we do with that in cycling? Um, you know, and it, and you can see the, the result of it every, I mean, rubber compounding, which we don't do any, any of, but we do do tire testing for some of the major tire brands and oh my goodness, the, the change, what, what's happened with rubber compounds in the last 10 years is just, it's mind boggling. You know, I mean, the, the best, you know, we, we always call them onion skins, the paper thin uh, track tires that they use on the wooden indoor track, you know, the, the best onion, the Olympic, you can't buy them. Pistoro, uh, tires from 12 years ago are comparable to like some of the best modern tubeless tires that like any of us can buy and ride for a pretty reasonable, uh, yeah. amount of money. You know, I mean that, that March of technology has just been really kind of eye opening uh, and incredible to watch. So. Well, the other breakthrough technologies, I know you, I mean, you just launched a new sealant, is tuber tires. And I do remember you saying somewhere in an interview or a podcast about how you see tubers being a breakthrough for protein that embraces it and all proteins riding it within a certain time frame. And I'm a big advocate of uh, tubers um, primarily because it avoids punctures on crappy roads here in the UK. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you, and I, again, it's another technology where amateur riders have embraced it largely and pros haven't. Um, do you see the pros actually switching the, from the tubs to tubers anytime in the future, or will it never happen? I, I, it's going to happen. Uh, it's already okay. kind yeah. of happening. I, the, the big thing to remember with the pro teams is they really, um, 
they're more like like an army <laughs> than <laughs> than you know any of us are used to experiencing. And you know, we we talk a lot about logistics, and of course, as we're talking now, we've got this whole like Ukraine Russia thing happening. Yeah. Um, where you see, like you know, the Russians they came in fast, they overextended their supply lines, they can't supply themselves from the rear, right? And things are f- absolutely falling apart. Um, that's really how these professional teams operate, and and I think you know, as much as we all want to paint them as being, uh, you know, at the bleeding edge of technology um, and embracing all these new things, you know, they're actually really quite slow on the the bigger scale uh, to, to change and to embrace largely because the logistics are so complicated. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we, you know, we're typically ordering in September all of the tires for the following season for a team. And so like, you know, that September, October for us is really busy because, you know, we're getting these spreadsheets of, okay, here's the tires that I can't, you know, and then you think too, the limitations, okay, here's the tires I can order. Here's the wheels I can order. And here's the races we want to do. And I have to have all of this ordered by September 1st, if I'm going to receive it by January 15th. And then you get into situations like, you know, if we want to run 32 millimeter tires at Paris-Roubaix, you know, we're going to have somewhere between 72 and 96 wheels at a Paris-Roubaix. Right, because the the you typically have five or six cars that get ahead of the race and wait on the cobbles for the riders, right? And so you know you have to have all the riders' bikes plus the spare bikes on the car plus the spare wheels on the cars plus the spare wheels that are in all of the other cars that run ahead. And so you know you hit this point of oh well we need to have the ninety six tires that we're going to need to have glued or installed or or and the sealant or whatever, um, we need to have all of that ordered in September, <laughs> right? <laughs> so that it's landed by January. And then, you know, sometime early March, some mechanic at the service course is going to tear, you know, either have 96 new wheels to work with or tear tires off and start replacing them. I mean, the logistical challenges are mad. Wow, yeah. uh, I mean, even down to, you know, all the cars have to get to the same service course, say a week before uh, the Flanders Roubaix week to get all of that equipment to then make it to the, you know, cause you're going to have five or six team cars at the event. Um, and all that equipment is turned over. So, you know, the, the pro teams, you know, I think we like to talk about, you know, maybe truly, maybe there's one rider with something really special, um, at an event like Roubaix or at the tour, you know, you might, uh, collaborate with a sponsor to have a new part or a new product or, or, a, a new paint job or whatever, um, you know, for one of the days or, or, but, but just the logistical nightmare of doing it at that big scale is, is I think the thing people really need to get their brains wrapped around. So, so to get back to your actual question, um, you know, something like tube, like tubeless sealant is a massive opportunity slash problem for the pro team, because it means on the one hand, well, we might be able to eliminate punctures, uh, or reduce, you know, again, it's back to our money ball. You know, what if we could reduce punctures by half? That's a big deal. The flip side of that coin is, you know, we've got 72 wheels in each of our team trailers. And how do we know how old the sealant is in that fourth wheel from the back in the top <laughs> left corner, right, right? That hasn't been ridden in three weeks and, you know, just came off of our other trailer from Spain because it, you know, it, it just gets out of hand really quickly for them. Um, and so I think that's where, 
you know, you really try to tighten down the scope of some of these, uh, some of these projects. And, and I think it's really going to play into the, into the hand or the favor of the, uh, foam insert technology because the foam insert technology doesn't have an aging issue. Um, and so if you can run foam insert in tubeless without sealant, that's probably, uh, that's probably the technology that wins the race to the finish line there. Um, and I will say with some of two of the teams we work with, we are using that technology and we're using it almost exclusively without sealant. Um, though we are still using sealant for key riders on key events, just because. Sorry, do you still get the benefits of tubeless without a sealant though? Obviously you don't have the latex plug in a hole, but you still get the benefits in terms of ride quality or roll resistance. Yeah, so the 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 best modern foam inserts are actually, sh- they're closed cell foam, so they're shrinking up small under pressure. And so you can still get some of the rolling resistance advantages of these new tires. Okay. Um, and then when you flat, they expand. And you can generally ride. I mean, we, you know, last year we, we had our two riders at Roubaix finish on foam inserts um, oh, wow, really? that, you know, otherwise would have flatted and needed wheels. So, uh, you know, that you st- like I said, for, for the truly key, key events, I'm still going to be putting sealant in my, the top riders um, wheels. It just, it's a whole different animal, you know, having one set of race wheels with sealant in it that we put a sticker on, you know, sealant and the date. Um, that's a whole lot more manageable for the team and the mechanics than trying to juggle, you know, hundreds of wheels with sealant of unknown time frame, <laughs> right? right? It, it, uh, that sort of a thing. So, so yeah, I think, you know, we still, now of course, when that's you and, and you are your top rider, <laughs> It's a different story, right? I think, you know, for me, I pick sealant every time. I put sealant in my commuter bike, um, you know, because it's, there's just real world benefits for it. But I also, you know, you're probably like me, you're juggling a couple of bikes worth of um, of work and effort and information that needs to be understood and not 72 <laughs> yeah. wheel sets plus 20 team bikes plus whatever else. I never really thought about a scale because I've got like, six bikes downstairs with tubes, but I couldn't tell you how old the sealant is in each of them. I, I'm not organized enough to have a spreadsheet for the a sealant status on each one. But yeah, like you say, you've got that many bikes and wheels. I can see why it's not. Because we've seen some, most of the pro peloton switch to disc brakes, which probably now compared to tubers, is quite an easy change really because you swap all the bikes out and wheels out. It hurts once, we do it once. But tubers is an ongoing problem. Isn't it? Like You can maintain that sealant keep track of what's in what so if you avoid using sealant you get around that problem quite easy don't you yes yeah no for sure and and you know we do still change tires for certain events and and you know as much as we love sealant it really makes that process slower and dirtier and so when it uh you know it takes extra time to do relatively simple things that's a problem and you know and and i I would say on, on top of that you know Pro mechanics are the opposite of the rest of us that, I mean, these guys can typically glue tubulars faster than, I mean, I could install clinchers. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a process um, that they stay on, on top of, but it, the speed at which the pro mechanics can manage tubulars because they've done it for so long, it's really impressive. And so, um, you know, that's actually one of the things, certainly with a lot of the teams, um, 
that's helping the tubulars hang on a little bit is, you know, they've got mechanics that are just like, oh no, that's, you know, if, if you want us to switch, you need to hire another mechanic per truck um, to offset the time difference. And then the final piece of that is, you know, we still kind of interestingly, we, there's a number of teams, even some, some pretty high-end teams that just cannot hit that 6.8 weight limit. Um, and so that's the other thing that's going to, the other reason uh, tubulars are hanging on a little bit with some of the even bigger teams, but it, it, they, there's not there's not much uh, life left in that project. I mean, the, the tubeless stuff. I, I can see the directionality just from looking at the R&D departments of the tire brands, right? I mean, nobody's spending a dollar developing tubulars. Um, so the long-term directionality here is pretty is pretty clear. Tubeless is the future. Okay. Yeah, I, I totally agree. On um, another margin game we've not really touched on, but you mentioned just then of weight. Is weight really an area? Because I know weight in the past has been a focus for bike brands and riders and weight weenies out there in the world. Is weight really something we should chase in the same way we're chasing kind of optimum tire pressure and chain loop, or is weight really a bit of a red herring in terms of speed and all round performance? Uh, it's kind of both. <laughs> I, I think weight, you know, weight is such a popular marginal gain to chase because it's so easy to measure. Yeah. You know, it's like my, my early, the early days of zip, you know, that just drove me nuts. It's like, like, you know, we, everybody can pick up a wheel and, and feel that the one is lighter than the other, but you can't pick something up and be like, Oh, it's so aerodynamic compared to the other one. You know, like you, <laughs> you need really expensive uh, equipment to, to give you that answer. And so, so I think weight's an easy one for that reason. Um, you know, it, it, it absolutely matters. It weight plays into the rolling resistance equation uh, in a small way, but it's there. Um, so, you know, saving weight, your rolling resistance will come down. Certainly when you're climbing, weight's a big deal. Um, but at the same time, it is definitely not nearly as big a deal as I think people over the years have, have made it into. Um, you know, and we, we have these brilliant computer models that we can, we can work out on these things, but certainly for, uh, you know, like time trial or triathlon. I mean, the, you know, even at, at courses like Challenge Roth or, you know, Ironman Wales, where you've got um, significant elevation change yeah. through the course, you just can never run the model and end up going with the lighter weight, less aero bike. I mean, they're, these, these things are so aero dominated. Um, so weight really becomes, you know, are you, uh, is it a, a mountaintop finish of a stage, right? Like that's when you're going to optimize for weight. Um, you know, if, if you are a lighter rider and you are kind of relying on your explosiveness to open that gap, to kind of crack a competitor, that's when weight's going to be, you know, it's really Carlos Sastra helped me get my head around that. You know, we kept doing these, no, Carlos, you know, you ride the aero bike and the 404s and you're 600 calories, fewer calories burned at the base of the Alpe d'Huez. And then, you know, um, you know, to try to get him mad and he's, you know, and he's looking at me going, yeah, but when I, what I need is when it goes to 21% and I put my attack in the difference between, you know, a four meter gap and a five meter gap is like the difference between somebody catching back on and having, and you breaking them, right. You crushing their soul. Um, (laughs) That's when it matters, you know, And, and, you know, that certainly helped me get my head around the rider mentality piece and the criticality of the tactics of it. Although if you look, Carlos Sastra actually did, uh, when he won his tour 
um, and one that helped to a stage he wanted on 404s. And and the reason he was able to do that was the 6.8 weight limit, um, which is the other thing that comes into play here. You know, a lot of these is part of my thing that drives me nuts with Contador. You know, he he's running super light bar tape and extra light cable housings and all this. And then, you know, we're coming in and putting, you know, 500 grams of tungsten in his bottom bracket spindle to get the stupid bike back up to 6.8. It's like, you know, you just, the mechanics just did three extra hours of work so that we could move weight around in the bike. Um, but for him, you know, he, he really loved the way that a bike with a low center of gravity felt out of the saddle. You know, he really wanted his handlebars to be light. Um, there was a real mental piece of that for him. And so, you know, he would go to this special light saddle and this super thin bar tape and these, I mean, all this craziness, um, you know, which again, for me was like, we're just putting it back in, but that's me thinking like an algorithm and, you know, him, him knowing himself in, in that moment. Um, so yeah, I would, I would say weight, weight's important. Um, it's definitely a marginal gain. And I think people need to remember that, you know, it is not, I I think it's so often for so many people, it's like the be all end all. You're like, it's really not, it's a marginal gain. Um, the other piece of that, that, I think your listeners might find interesting that really for me changes the way people think about tires and rolling resistance is that your CRR, um, it has a quick mathematical translation to slope. And so we can actually take the CRR between tires and equate it, um, to climbing. And so a, you know, a simple way to look at it is, uh, the, the example I always use, you know, a GP 5000 TR versus a continental gator skin, um, are equivalent to, you know, something like a half a percent of slope change. And so if we're riding side by side and I'm on, you know, the GP 5000s and you're on the gator skins on flat road, it's like, I'm riding a flat road and you're climbing at half a percent. <laughs> and, and I think it's, it's that type of thinking that makes okay. people realize like, Oh, wow. Cause you know, that rolling resistance thing, it's, if you're climbing, it's adding, you know, if you're on a flat road, it's adding half a percent, but if you're climbing at 10%, it's adding half a percent. Uh, those are real numbers. Um, you know, there's real energy consumption. I mean, that's significantly slowing you down. And so I think that's another, uh, for me, fun way to kind of play through the math where you go, you know, you know how important you think weight is. And we, we use this with our pro athletes all the time. Well, here's how that works out. And this tire thing, it's exactly the same, you know? And so we can easily equate, um, you know, a, a weight savings to a rolling resistance savings for a given grade. And it, you know, it, it it's interesting stuff. I've got a, we can put it up in the video, but Robert Chung uh, has this great graph of uh, CR. He says, was it weight weenies should be CRR weenies. <laughs> and, you know, I think the, the, the crossing point of equivalency is, is, you know, like a kilogram or something. It, we'll, we'll throw it up yeah. for the, uh, for yeah, people yeah. to look at, but it, it, it's pretty eye opening how significant CRR can be relative to weight. The big difference being, you know, you don't have a good way of feeling your CRR because we're just, you know, as humans, we don't have nearly, uh, sort of the, the sensory perception that we think that we have in, yeah. in, in all things, right. You know, we can all pick something up and go, Oh, that's lighter. Um, but you know, when it comes to sensing speed, we're terrible at it. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, sensing uh, even tire efficiency, it's, 
you know, five, six PSI tire pressure change can be the difference between a, a steel bike and a carbon bike in terms of ride quality. And, you know, because we see that we're getting on that carbon bike, we're all like, oh man, it's comfortable, a carbon bike, you know, but nobody ever gets on their bike and gets to the end of the driveway and goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm four PSI too low today, <laughs> you know, and, and we've tested this. I mean, you, you probably have to go 12, 12 ish PSI, 13, roughly one bar tire change before the rider notices that the pressure's changed. Um, whereas, you know, you can give someone a, uh, a, a carbon handlebar that's identical in stiffness to the aluminum handlebar it replaces, and they will come back and tell you for five minutes how much better the carbon handlebar is. Um, because they can see it, right? And it's in their hands. And, you know, that that's just us as humans. So, <laughs> Yeah, I think I, I, I've always struggled testing aero products and, and tires and pressure because it's difficult to quantify in the real world, so many variables. And I actually know somebody who was riding around for quite a while on tires that are way too soft. He hadn't checked the tire pressure for ages and they lost some air over a few weeks. And he's like, this bike feels good. And then we checked the tire pressure and like, you know, some 20 PSI lower than you normally run. <laughs> And then basically yeah, did yeah. pump back up to 110 psi, but no, like blindfolded. If you give somebody low pressures and they think they're high pressures, there's one way of sort of fooling them to embracing the benefits or something. But it's, like I say, quite it's a psychological game as well. And I guess that's sort of another sort of unquantifiable marginal gain, like the Contour story. Like you like the way a bike felt. For him, that's a marginal gain, but not one you can really quantify in a lab yeah. or testing, is it? It's a that's it's hard, you know. We, yeah, we w- with our pro athletes, we've really moved to doing as much uh, field testing as possible, and we use the the Chung method or the virtual elevation testing method. Okay. And, and I think it it certainly helps the rider feel as if it's a more realistic test, you know, yeah. than than the wind tunnel. Um, and even then, you know, at, at Contador, <laughs> back to trying to get him to ride. Uh, uh, the 808 versus the the three spoke and trying to get him to ride 303s for that cobbled tour stage. God, this is years ago now. Um, but, you know, even with him, you know, we did these, he would do these out and backs and, you know, we've got it like live in the data through the SRM. And, you know, I would point at the data and it's like a step function in speed difference. And he would come in, you know, just with his, his great voice and accent wing, see, can you see clearly faster? Like, no, clearly slower. Like here's the data, clearly slower. I do not believe, you know, he would shake his finger. You know, I know what I feel. And, uh, and, and, you know, one, one of the good ones there that we picked up on quickly is he loved the sound that that three spoke made. Right. And he okay, really yeah. associated that thwop, thwop, thwop sound with speed. Yeah. And, you know, he would, I mean, we get this thing set up and he's out and back on this course and, you know, oh yeah, you see that's so much faster. I can feel it. You know, I'm like going, dude, you're 0.2 K an hour slower on that wheel than, you know, the other wheel. <laughs> um, and he just, you know, he just wouldn't believe the science on that with, whereas, um, you know, with Cervelo test team, we did a lot of really interesting stuff, uh, on blinded rider study and okay. trying cause you know, that team was based largely on feedback from the riders about the equipment. And it was a really exciting, one of the most fun teams I've ever been with. Uh, I, I would say the modern EF is the closest thing to that. I mean, that the, the way they're running the program at EF right now is just, is just amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and very open-minded and, and embracing of technology. But before that there was Cervelo test team and, you know, you would get feedback from the riders, you know, on certain things. Oh, you know, these wheels were, you know, they, 
you know, I could feel the way they absorbed the high frequency vibrations and cornering and, you know, gave me additional confidence. You know, you would just get these like ridiculous, like, you know, magazine test reviews back from the riders. And so we had the the thought of like, well, what if we, what if we blindfold them and not tell them what they're on? And then we change, you know, change stuff up. And so, you know, we, Cervelo made some frames that were like a factor of two difference in stiffness, but looked the same, right? So it was oh, like wow. two R3 frames, but I mean, one was a noodle and one was super stiff. And we did the same with wheels and we would put it, put the riders on it, not tell them what they were on. And, you know, we had the, um, that sweat guard thing from yeah. the indoor trainer. So it was kind of hard for them to really see what they were riding. And man, suddenly the feedback was like, well, this may have been better than option A, but it also may have felt heavier when I did, you know, and it would be all this like conflicting, contradictory stuff and all of this sort of, um, I, I don't know, like it just becomes very vague, you know, and that that's yeah. where it really hit me. Like, oh, you you guys are like the rest of us, right? I mean, you you have this amazing, you do this for a living, but we're just not as sensitive as we think that we are. Um, to a lot of the stuff that we want to be, you know, it, it's cool to be the guy that can tell that your tires are two PSI under pressure, right? Like that, that's exciting to people. Like I want to be that guy. And, you know, and the reality is <laughs> I've tried it blind and like, nobody's that guy. I mean, no. <laughs> you know, no, we definitely have athletes who are sensitive to positional things, you yeah. know, like a two millimeter, you know, or, or, uh, the other one you see a lot of are the changes in chamois thickness. Okay. Um, you know, so like through the year, you know, the, the team might get, you know, uh, riders might get uh, a similar product, but there's something at the factory and all of a sudden there's like a millimeter difference in the chamois. And, you know, some guys are just like losing their minds. Um, and then there's other riders who are like, yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't notice. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, it, so it's a real mix, but it, you know, but I think we all fall in love with that idea of like, oh yeah, I'm so attuned to, to my bicycle that I can feel all these, these tiny things. And yeah, don't you're not that guy or girl, and I'm not either, and neither is Fabian Cancellara <laughs> or, or pretty much anyone else. Uh, Brilliant. Um, well, I've taken up quite a bit of time now, Josh. So, um, my last question for you is working in the field of marginal games for the last 10 plus years, you've seen a lot of changes. Looking into your crystal ball, what do you see for the next 10 years? What are the big breakthrough areas? Where do we need to sort of look or focus on? Oh gosh. I, I think we're going to continue to see fairly dramatic. It's, it's going to slow, right? Like all, uh, all technological development is asymptotic over time, right? So it's, it's going to approach some limit. Okay. Um, we're going to con continue to see big advances in tires and tire technology. I think we're going to see a, finally a convergence of, uh, tubeless standards, that are going to allow some exciting changes in wheels and tires where um, things will start to work better as a system, even when they're not from the same manufacturer. Um, that's going to be big. I think we're going to see some nice improvements in disc brakes and sort of the integration around that, that it, it's just a bit clunky now and, you know, discs are great, but they're, I mean, they're, they're far from perfect. Uh, so I think we're going to see some improvements there and then I think we're also going to see this sort of at least in road fast road I think we'll see sort of a convergence on this 30 32 millimeter tire thing with matching rims and bikes that that 
really work well both aerodynamically and uh, from a ride quality comfort perspective um, for road in that area. And then I think, you know, we're going to continue to just see all sorts of crazy, exciting stuff in gravel. Um, you know, I think we still have, you know, gravel's really still kind of in its infancy. And so I think we've, you know, you're going to see faster gains to crazier concepts there, um, than you see in road, but it, it feels to me a lot like some of this weird mountain geometry stuff is going to start finding more and more of its way into gravel, uh, as we get our heads wrapped, wrapped around that a, a little bit better. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the, what is it? The evil, um, Shammy Hagar concept, oh, yeah. you know, which is just so far out there and, and is totally displeasing to my eye. Um, but it rides really interestingly and it's a fascinating concept. And I think it shows, you know, how far, I, you know, I mean, I come from a world of, you know, uh, old school frame builders arguing about a half degree head tube angle change. And these guys are like, screw it, you know, <laughs> like, you know, Guess make the, the bike five centimeters longer and give it a five <laughs> degree head tube. You know, I mean, they're just, and, and then you get on it and ride it and like, Oh, wow. There's something here. This is, this is really interesting. And, you know, and, and so I think that's a, uh, to me, that's exciting because it shows that we, there potentially, uh, we, there's this thing called annealing theory and it's these ideas that they're the idea that you can have, um, you know, we're not necessarily all on a continuum, like we're marching towards some ever more refined Formula One car. You know, it's that, you know, you might have like a locus of solution set here that's quite good, but you also might have another locus over here. And if you're just marginal gaining this one, you're never going to find this other one. And I think, you know, I'm excited to see some of these uh, brands like, like Evil um, and, and like 3T with that wheel, you know, throwing caution to the wind and really just doing some of these kind of wild out there or searching for these more wild and more out there solution sets to some of these problems. Um, Cause I think it could take us in some, some really interesting things. And then the one, the, the last one I'll bring that I think is it's an outlier, but it's super exciting to me is the, the stuff that's happening with uh, this driven bike. If you're familiar oh, yes. with yeah with that and, and the technology there. And, you know, in some ways it's super old school. I mean, we have patents that look kind of like this thing from like the 19, early 1900s. And of course, on the flip side of that, I mean, this thing is so 25 years ahead of its time um, that it's hard to even begin to wrap your head around how it works, but it, it really works. Um, it's amazing when you actually can play with the thing with your own hands and see it functioning. And I think that could you know, if, if they do it right, um, that could just, that could change everything, uh, going forward. So do you think that's really a possibility? It's not so far, far fetched that it could actually transform the bicycle. You know, it's hard to say, um, you know, I will say they're, they're full disclosure. They're, they're really good friends of mine and I've probably know more than I should about the project, uh, for a number of years. And, and it's exciting. I, I mean, it's a big ask, right? I mean, they are taking on a monumental yeah. task and it's it, it, certainly when you're trying to change something in that big a way, it's probably a pretty low probability that that becomes, you know, the, the future state of, of cycling, but they have taken that thing to, I mean, they, they have rideable prototypes that work and they're amazing. Um, and that's super exciting for me because it's, 
it's just so different, you know, and yeah. it's, you know, it's the opposite of the marginal gain. That's a, like, we're going to blow this whole thing up and start from <laughs> scratch. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know whether that's going to actually become uh, the, the future or not, but I think the, the learnings, the inspiration, right. I mean, you know, there's a whole, if you'd have brought that to me five years ago when they first started working on it, I said, you're crazy, man. I wouldn't even bother with that. That's, that'll never work. And the fact that they've gotten it as far as they've gotten it and they're continuing to develop it, I think becomes inspiration for a whole younger generation of engineers to look at and go, well, that thing, look at that thing that almost worked or that did work. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of that, that banister effect that we like to talk about, you know, the four minute mile wasn't possible until it was possible. And, you know, I can't remember the exact statistic, but, you know, Bannister breaks the four minute mile and in the next year, like, you know, 20 other people do it. Right. Yeah. Cause it just, you just completely changed, um, the, the kind of perception of what's possible. And I, th- I think in that way, almost regardless of whatever level of success they achieve with that, uh, that project in that company, I, I think it's gonna, it will long-term forever change the industry in some really interesting and unique ways. Brilliant. Um, well, thanks for your time, uh, Josh. Pleasure. Nice to... Uh, no, thank you. It's a pleasure. Enjoyed it. Peek, peek inside your brain and your, your mind <laughs> and what you're working on and stuff. So, uh, yeah, um, I'll, I'll keep an eye on Silkwood products. I'm sure you've got loads more in the pipeline that you can't talk about now, but... Um, we're Yeah, we're hoping. Always something. Always, always something, something fun coming. So. Brilliant. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Hey, thank you. Cheers, mate. So that was a fascinating insight into the world of marginal gains by somebody who lives and breathes marginal gains, working with world tour professionals, but also developing products so we can all benefit from marginal gains. Let me know what you think by leaving a comment on social media. Make sure to follow Josh on his social media and his podcast as well. Definitely worth uh, subscribing to. And you can see a video of his podcast over on my YouTube channel as well. But that's all for now. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for some more podcasts from Just Ride Bikes in the near future.